Welcome to the Neurology Live Mind Moments Podcast. Tune in to your leaders in neurology sound off on topics that impact your clinical practice. I'm your host, Matt Hoffman, Managing Editor with Neurology Live. In this episode, our Associate Editor Marco Meglio spoke with Dr. George Small, an adult neurologist at Allegheny Health Network, who discussed the state of care for myasthenia gravis and the recent success that the field has found, as well as changes to patient care and what to expect from this current era of treatment. Without further ado, let's dive in. I just wrote a piece for an internal publication called Brainwaves, mm-hmm. uh, which is a publication of the Neuroscience Institute at AHN. And um, I tried to write it in a, in a fairly friendly, light manner because I think the target audience for that are patients and their families. And uh, I started with a phrase that may seem disconcerting. I said, there's never been a better time uh, on this planet to have myasthenia gravis than now, which sounds a little odd since it is a chronic disease. Since no one is ever cured of it 100%, the definition of cure that we use is minimal manifestation disease. It's a disease that causes potentially disabling weakness, particularly of muscles at the neck or above the neck with double vision and or swallowing or speech problems. And it could get bad enough that it could cause breathing problems enough for people to be on ventilators. Um, It's an autoimmune disease. It's the most common autoimmune disease in neurology. Just like you would think of lupus or you would think of rheumatoid arthritis and so forth, it's treated with some of the similar drugs. Um, And about 80% of patients can be treated with simple uh, therapy with pills they see their doctor once in a while, their symptoms are managed, if not 100% perfectly, except to the point where they could carry out their uh, activities of daily living, meaning live a normal life, but they sort of know they have the problem. There are a good 20%, however, who will occasionally go through bouts where they might not be able to walk, they might choke, which is dangerous, and they might require mechanical ventilation. A distinct minimum of people will go on to require a chronic ventilatory assistance or breathing problems. I like to um, uh, differentiate it from uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease for which there is still a tremendous amount of research. And I would never say this is the best time in the world to have ALS. That really is not the right way to describe it. Myasthenia gravis should not cause the death of anybody. Um, Myasthenia gravis is mentioned about 80% of the time can be handled with some pills and doctor visits here and there. People keeping an eye on warning signs about breathing and swallowing. Going to their medical provider if they have any worsening symptoms in that uh, sphere and to wear a medical alert badge. 
uh, because it's not the most common disease in the world. It's considered an or orphan disease because there are fewer than 50,000 people in the United States with it. The landscape of myasthenia treatment has exploded, has burgeoned since about 2018 approximately, when the drugs called complement inhibiting drugs, the first drug uh, got approved who used that mechanism of action. And that drug's name is Solaris, which is the trade name or Eculizumab, which is the generic name. It has other uses uh, in medicine for certain kidney diseases uh, that are rare. And it is FDA approved for adult patients with generalized myasthenia gravis. That is not myasthenia gravis that just affects the eyes, but other parts of the body. Um, we have experience with that here at AHN, myself and my partners using it. It's uh, administered every two weeks as an intravenous. Uh, there are almost no side effects during the treatment. Um, one requires it every two weeks though, and technically it's lifetime, it doesn't have to be. The drug company that produces it has come out with another drug called Ultimaris, which is a long acting version of the Solaris, so to speak, and requires infusions every eight weeks. And we've dosed our first patient with it in the last few weeks. It got approved in May. And so uh, the short acting version was about 2018. The uh, longer acting version in uh, 2022. And between the two, in December of 2021, another drug called Fgartigamod or Vivgart came out, which is also an intravenous drug that's administered in cycles of once a week intravenous. Uh, for four weeks, and then the doctor makes a decision whether other cycles are needed. And we have experience with that drug as well. We have many of these drugs without side effects during administration. They potentially have side effects, which I can go into. Um, and I've been very happy with the results from both of these medications. I think these two medications and the uh, second version of the first medication I mentioned are the only FDA-approved drugs for myasthenia that have come out in the last 30 years. And they've come out within several years of one another. And since uh, we're, in a sense, blessed to have a community of doctors here at Allegheny General Hospital, particularly myself, interested in treating myasthenia gravis because we happen to have collected two to 300 patients with a disorder, which is a lot of patients for an orphan disease. And in tandem with the Myasthenia Gravis Association of Western Pennsylvania, which had had a management services agreement with Allegheny Health System and had actually uh, uh, had a clinic uh, where they participated, which has since dissolved, but the organization still exists as a information organization. And there's a telephone number uh, that can that's associated with uh, those individuals who are lay people, but who know about MG. They have a loose association with the National Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America, of which I'm a board member. And uh, it's just the right time, in a sense, to come to Allegheny Health System mm -hmm. if you happen to have this disorder because of our experience. I've had 30 years experience treating myasthenia gravis here at AHN. 
with other drugs in the beginning, frequently steroids, uh, which are used for many other disorders that are rheumatologic. Um, we have the intensive care capabilities that uh, people go south and have problems breathing, which is a minority of patients. And we also have the expertise in the office with nurses and support staff uh, for proper follow-up and support of these patients. So it's not it's it's a good time to have expertise in MG because we are putting it to good use. Uh, that expertise in providing it to our patients immediately. The horizon of patients of doctors that is with neuromuscular disease experience. Excuse me. With uh, neuromuscular disease experience um, has dwindled in mm -hmm. Western Pennsylvania. A number of people at other hospitals uh, at, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh have lost their neuromuscular clinicians. They've retired or moved away. And there hasn't been a resupply of them. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Dr. Rana, who runs our ALS clinic and also runs our residency program, is highly skilled and expert in treating myasthenia gravis, and myself are available for this, uh, we're ready to go at AHN. And we are treating people with state-of-the-art therapies, and we have state-of-the-art support systems for them in these challenging times. I know that this is, it's a really, really exciting time for MG, and you kind of talked about it even with this sort of recent approvals, which kind of brings me to my next point is when assessing these sorts of patients, especially with some of the newer approvals and the fact that there are an expanding or an expanding toolbox of treatments, you, you mentioned corticosteroids and I know plasma exchange has been used in the past as, in the past as well. So how do you decide which therapy is, is suitable for which patients? And also when you do have that decision, what types of things are you factoring in and, and what types of conversations are you having? We want patients with myasthenia gravis to be office patients, not necessarily hospital patients. And the first step is to make the right diagnosis. It can be challenging to make the right diagnosis. 85% of patients with myasthenia gravis will have a standard positive blood test for it that any reasonable neurologist would uh, send. Um, about half of the remaining patients have a different antibody that uh, our neuromuscular specialists at Allegheny Health System are aware of, and we will test them for that. And then there are about a small percentage of patients, approximately 7%, that don't have any positive antibody. I'm involved in research have, in terms of finding antibodies in patients with those issues. But for some reason, it can go over the head of a very busy clinician, whether it's a primary care doctor or an eye doctor or a neurologist, to test for some of these unusual antibodies. And we have the capability to do it here. And I actually have a request in to some of the clinical laboratory leaders in pathology of even other blood tests that are available in other parts of the country so that we have our full armamentarium of tests available to diagnose people properly and also to exclude people from potentially dangerous and expensive treatments if they don't have the disease. Many patients, are on prednisone, oral steroids. And as I say, I love steroids and I hate steroids. Steroids make aches and pains go away. I had poison ivy and I prescribed a tiny amount of steroids for myself. And let's just say I thought I took what uh, a person who took street drugs would feel like. I felt pretty darn good. 
not that I would know about how street drugs are in people, except by observation. But the problem is, is that people get psychologically hooked on them and they also work for MG. The trouble is we can put 50 pounds on you in a few months and make you very sick and make you prone to infections. So we use them as a stopgap first, along with a drug called Mestinon, which is a lifestyle drug that can help some of the problems with speaking, swallowing, and double vision, but they really don't treat the cause of the disease. Some of the other drugs we add, or are supposed to add, that I learned to add when I trained 30 years ago, were drugs that are used in organ transplants, like Celsept and Imuran. They have the short-term effects of not working for six to eight months, and they also don't have what we refer to as good research behind them. Uh, they may work in some people, they may not work in other people. And people are on the go. There are many patients we have who are young and healthy, like yourself and how I used to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, need, they wanna get treated now and they deserve to get treated now. And uh, many of them are also not particularly compliant with the blood work that's needed to make sure that we're not hurting their kidneys and livers with these pills. Mm -hmm. With IVIG or gamma globulin, which I use quite a bit of, and plasmapheresis, which is a dialysis-like treatment, we like to reserve those for people who are moving into that 20% who can't swallow and it's dangerous or can't walk or breathe. And we admit people to the hospital, give them either of those treatments depending upon our choice. Occasionally uh, use them as outpatients, uh, after a patient has been uh, discharged from a hospital, but we want to try to avoid uh, giving them on a chronic basis. And in fact, insurance companies are avoiding them. They're very expensive and there are risks to being on dialysis or dialysis-like treatment because one requires a large intravenous line and so forth. It's very inconvenient. Mm -hmm. um, so in any event, we can help people, we can save their lives, we can make things more convenient for people and the way I look at it is the bugaboo are steroids. If I can get your steroid dose down and turn you from one of those 20% who might be on the edge of doing badly, which is a large percentage of our patients, or have had that terrible experience of being on a breathing machine or been in the hospital and can't swallow, is either of those two treatments that I mentioned, the Vivgard or the Solaris or the long acting version of the Solaris, the Ultimaris, really are the way to go. Of course, they're expensive at the current time. Now, I the patient doesn't pay out of pocket for the most part. I do not know the medical economics of it, but I would like to use uh, these two substances. And I know a longer acting version of Vivgard is being studied right now. And if it's approved, we'll have at least two choices of steroid uh, sparing therapy for patients that will increase their lifespans because they might've been on large dose steroids. And so people are jumping at the idea of having these drugs. And I have at least 15 patients on either of these two medications at the current time mm -hmm. and would like to have more. Um, some of the barriers to that have to do, of course, with insurance issues. And since we're in a period of time where we have to spend a lot of time on the phone um, having these uh, drugs approved for insurance companies to pay for, um, it's challenging because we're in a period of time where all hospitals have staffing issues. But despite that, we've been successful in moving forward and using these new steroid sparing therapies.
We're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Dr. Small to give you up to date on the latest developments in neurology. Welcome to the Neurology News Minute. Here's what you may have missed since our last episode. First, the FDA has given clearance to the NeuroSteer single-channel EEG brain monitoring platform, allowing the multi-purpose system to be utilized in a wide variety of clinical settings. The platform can be used for continuous brain monitoring to support critical intervention in the ICU, for in-office visits, for the detection of pre-symptomatic cognitive decline, as well as in large-scale clinical trial screening. Next, in a recent announcement of a data presentation from the Phase 3 Connect HD study of valbenazine, or also known as Ingreza, from Neurocrine Biosciences at the 29th annual meeting of the Huntington Study Group, the company's chief medical officer noted that the data, as well as findings from the ongoing open-label Connect HD 2 study, will serve, have served, as the basis for the supplemental NDA that the company submitted for the therapy in the treatment of chorea associated with Huntington disease. Next, according to an announcement, the FDA has accepted an NDA for UCB Pharma's investigational subcutaneously delivered agent Zaluka plan for the treatment of adults with ACHR antibody-positive generalized myasthenia gravis. This news comes shortly after the European Medicines Agency validated the MAA for the, same, the treatment for the same indication. Zulucaplan, a complement C5 inhibitor, demonstrated a safe and tolerable profile while meeting its primary and secondary endpoints in the Phase 3 RAISE trial, which served as the basis for the application. Next, the FDA has also accepted an NDA for IPX203, a novel oral formulation of carbidopa levodopa extended release capsules that are intended to treat patients with Parkinson's disease, according to an announcement by Amnial Pharmaceuticals. The FDA has scheduled a PDUFA date of June 30th, 2023 to complete its evaluation of the NDA. And finally, months after the company cited that it was planning on submitting a BLA for its Neuron technology platform in the treatment of patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics announced that it has received a refusal to file letter from the FDA for its application. The FDA indicated that the company can request a type A meeting to discuss the contents of the refusal to file letter, which CEO Heim Leibowitz noted Brainstorm Cell planned to do. For more information about these stories, you can head to neurologylive.com, or you can check out the corresponding links in the show notes. And now, back to Dr. Small. I'm also curious, uh, with some of these new therapies, has there been, um, maybe not issues, but has there been challenges in terms of understanding dosages or sort of how to use them effectively? Obviously, you know, when they're FDA approved, they're usually if approved for an indication or an approved for a specific dosing level. But I'm just curious if there has been any sort of nuances or challenges or maybe just things that you're sort of figuring out with some of these newer therapies. The dosing issue is really a non-issue. Mm-hmm. It's proscribed. That is, it's standard dosing. Um, for Solaris and Ultimaris, one has to get immunizations because they are significant immunosuppressives before the entire treatment regimen starts. And that requires counseling of the patient. For VivGuard, that's not necessary. And the intravenous dosing is really very simple. And that's simple for both the VivGuard drug and the Ultimaris Solaris. The real bugaboo is getting 
home care companies to talk to insurance companies and have manpower to be able to administer these drugs and frankly, to have them approved. And it can take multiple phone calls for that to occur since it's very hard to get into physicians' offices at the current time, partially because of COVID, partially because uh, support staff or providers, nurses, medical assistants, and so forth, many of them are moving into other fields within healthcare and not working in offices. That can be the challenge. Not the dosing, frankly, that can be the challenge. The fact that for both Vivgard, uh, which is studying a longer acting version so that one only has to get it once every several months, and uh, Ultimaris dosing, which is already every eight weeks, that challenge has been obviated because at some point in the next year or so, there should be at least two drugs out that do not require you to have two visits every month. Talking with people within this space, there's a lot of positive, there's a lot of a buzz. Um, I know that the overall neurology space just in general over the last couple of years, maybe the last 10 years or so is really, really focused in on, on treating the whole patient, treating the patient holistically, caring a lot about quality of life. So I'm curious, are there any sorts of non-pharmacological options or um, ways that sure. we sort of improve quality sure. of life aside from the stereotypical prescribed treatments? Absolutely. There are adjuncts, which I'll get into in a minute. I know Dr. Silvestri personally. We're on a first name basis. Mm -hmm. I was at the same meeting uh, that you attended, and I attended a talk by Dr. Silvestri as well. It may have been the same one. I know he's at the University of Buffalo. He and I are on a first name basis with one another. And I had the um, uh, distinct pleasure of uh, meeting him about a year ago regarding his discussion of one of these therapies. Most of the research at the myasthenia gravis portion of the meeting that you're uh, referring to had to do with not just saving people's lives and keeping them off of ventilators and so forth. It had to do with, in a sense, increasing the quality of life because it isn't just people who are aged in their 80s who may be um, struck with strokes whose lives we can save with these drugs, but it's someone who's your age or even my age who's very active. And if I weren't able to speak, if I weren't able to get up in the morning, get out of bed and eat quickly, I couldn't do my job. And uh, one gets depressed and then it reaches a vicious cycle. So other than psychological counseling, the internet has provided a very good source of information if people are directed there properly by their providers, by someone like a Dr. Silvestri, or I hope myself, to get correct information and not misinformation about uh, medications. Suggestions like just staying out of the heat can be very helpful. And emphasizing that even if people have summer homes in Florida or they wanna to go to Hawaii, there are certain uh, suggestions or warnings we should give to people or provide information about minimizing certain risks of feeling lousy. One of them is to stay out of it, uh, significant heat. Another perhaps is to eat uh, certain foods that will not contribute to severe weight gain. And severe weight gain, I'm sure there's literature on, really can increase the risk of having myasthenia gravis exacerbations. In addition, and separate from just the personal aspect of it, 
I hope to give a uh, grand rounds lecture uh, in neurology that they have here at Allegheny regarding the cost savings of treating people correctly for myasthenia gravis. Some of the drugs uh, will always cost quite a bit of money. The question is, if they allow a person to work and function and, and contribute to the GDP of the country, then in a sense, uh, the cost is obviated by the fact that the person is a useful member of society. And there's gonna be more and more uh, pressure that frankly, the pharmaceutical companies who have absolutely uh, verified treatments for patients can suggest are used because they save money in the long run. It's much better to get someone who's struck with myasthenia gravis that's very bad at age 30 and treat them perhaps with a drug that may be in the five or six figure range uh, per year, but get them working as an executive, get them working as an inventor, get them working as an idea person for IT and keep them active and not having them be a burden on society. So although that's not really a personal element per se, I think the country and the state of Pennsylvania in particular has an interest in studying these more that you only get in, uh, you only get out what you get in, what you put into things. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been true for a long time. Steroids are cheap in the short term. In the long term, if you put 70 pounds on someone, they have a heart attack, they may have a stroke and they're brain damaged, they're gonna be a burden on society from being on disability. And I'm no actuary, I'm a doctor, I'm not an economist, but there's no doubt that that research exists now and even more research is going on to prove that. But basically to keep people happy in their lives that they have to deal with moderately severe myasthenia gravis, that they get the right information, that they keep to a proper weight, uh, it's true that you can exercise with myasthenia gravis. You have to keep an eye on it. And there are physical therapists who are specialists at providing suggestions uh, for those types of exercises for MG. And also for avoiding certain things, uh, perhaps not eating huge meals in the middle of the day so that you're in a sense useless the rest of the day, not moving, eating very small meals. That can be a very simple thing to suggest, but it can be helpful. Um, trying to avoid large amounts of carbohydrates because if you're overweight, it just can exacerbate the myasthenia, cause a vicious cycle. A doctor may wind up giving you more steroids because they make you feel better in the short term, but in the long term, it's a bad thing for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All, all factors to keep aware of. And like you mentioned, I mean, if, if the government can kind of see that people can go back to work and provide something for yes. them and provide something for society, then obviously right. they're a little bit more willing to kind of give back to the community. As and I don't see that there. now. I don't see that. It may exist, but I don't see that when we have denials for authorizations for these newer drugs I mentioned, and even some of the older drugs that are out. Um, some of the older drugs, as I said, they're not safe long-term, and that's been proved. And several posters, that is several um, shortened versions of the research that was a part of that meeting where people gave uh, lectures, addressed those issues as well. And I hope to address those more in my research in the future and also make it a part of a teaching mechanism for my fellow and for our residents to participate in. Mm -hmm. I think that re most residents and fellows are of course uh, interested in treating patients, making people feel better, 
but are not really trained in the economics of medicine or in the short-term psychological well-being, of uh, the long-term psychological well-being of their patients. Mm -hmm. And I know that Dr. Rana, as the program director of the residency, is trying to emphasize that. And that is also a uh, impetus of the American uh, uh, College of uh, Graduate Medical Education to do that as well, not just to have doctors give meds. Dr. Small, the last question that I have for you, and then we touched upon it a little bit before, is, um, you know, talking about sort of what is what is the hope for this future of the disease and what's coming down the pike in the next couple of years, just about some things that uh, you're interested in and, you know, maybe could change the community and, and how we treat patients. I'm involved, uh, I'm in the early stages of being involved in getting a study approved by our institutional review board on taking a therapy that is already used by oncologists in our system, cancer doctors, to try to treat or even cure certain blood diseases like lymphomas and leukemias, mm -hmm. and using the same mechanism of action to treat myasthenia gravis. I'll give you an example of that. Um, in this type of therapy for myasthenia gravis, we were invited to be part of a study where uh, an individual with myasthenia gravis who has positive antibodies gives blood. Their blood is separated into the serum and to the white and red blood cells. They get their red blood cells back and their serum. Their T cells, which are a form of white blood cell, are taken and are genetically engineered. Uh, sounds like science fiction. They're genetically engineered and then they are returned to the same patient. And the T cells basically have a receptor on them that tell other cells in the patient's body to turn off making the bad antibody for myasthenia gravis. And that is done in cancers and has cured several people and treated or even treated people successfully. And if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Lister uh, I believe the head of oncology at West Penn Hospital of Allegheny Health Network is involved in this type of research and therapy. And when he caught wind of the fact that this type of therapy may be available for myasthenia gravis, I know that we have his support in looking into the facilities at West Penn who can harvest the T cells in patients with myasthenia gravis and return them to the patient after they've been genetically engineered by an organization to uh, tell patients, other cells, to not make bad antibody. This is state-of-the-art therapy for not treating MG, but essentially turning off the signal that you even have MG. So uh, here at AHN and within our department, our experience with our hundreds of patients with MG has allowed us to be invited to be part of such research.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurology Live Mind Moments podcast. To support the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, for more neurology news and expert-driven content, you can visit neurologylive.com.